Hallelujah. All right. So just a bit of background. A couple of you guys went here last week, but we're just working, walking through the last three chapters um, briefly of Ephesians. Uh, you, you could get bogged down in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5, and Ephesians 6 really, really quickly just by spending a week on each verse. We could learn a lot of practical truths as it is to walk out um, our faith. But um, I just picked three major topics that these chapters look at to help us, to encourage us. Uh, but in, in doing so, I've used this verse as like a foundation for us, a foundation to, um, to, to go by. So this verse, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 to 10, um, if you'd like to turn there, just li- if you don't, just listen to what this verse says. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Therefore, it is grace. Amen. Nine, not as a result of work, so that one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And it's that that I'm all sort of focusing on, is this sense that God's created each and every one of us for a purpose. God's created each and every one of us to re- reveal the goodness that is God. And it is through our maturing in our relationship with God and our relationship with each other, and, and what we would say is Christian maturity, that we can reveal this to a world that needs it. Does that make sense? So that's sort of, the, the foundation of where we're going. And then last week, Ephesians chapter 4 was what we were looking at. And uh, the, there was the one focus of that. As we, as we looked at that, I, dis, I, I said that unity reveals our maturity. And uh, that Ephesians 4 says we are to walk worthy of the calling. In all of that, what we've been learning, what we've been looking at this year, who we are in Christ and being hidden in Christ and Christ in us. These truths have um, given us a sense of identity and they should bring about something in our lives, that something is actually fruit. It's not just identity, but identity leads us to live out a life that is fruitful to God. And this fruit actually is unity, one with another which ultimately reveals one thing. When there is Christian unity, we see maturity. If we can't be unified, what it highlights is that we are immature. Unity reveals our maturity. That sort of just encapsulates what we spoke about last week. And in finishing, it's like this picture of the body that Paul uses at the end of Ephesians 4 to break this down. That each and every one of us has a role. We can't function without the other. We belong one to another. Therefore, Christian unity is actually a very important topic when it comes to maturity. And uh, it's this working together, working out of a place of the body of Christ under the headship of our Lord Jesus that reveals something to the world looking on. Jesus said in John Uh, that it's by our love for one another that the world will know. It's as we love one another, the world will know. So that's just to give us a background into leading into this chapter today. 
So as unity leads us to believe maturely, um, and true unity reveals our level of maturity, which is the fruit, today I want to share three things that stand out from Ephesians 5 that are the mark of a mature Christian. Knowing something intellectually does not mean that we really know it. But to feel it, live it, actuate it in our life, to actually walk out of that says to me, looking at people, that says that they know what they believe. They know what they know what they know. Just because you read something doesn't mean you know it. It's actually when you experiment with it, use it, apply it into your life, then you know it. Now, not all of us are gifted um, in, the, in the realm of academics. Now, there are people sitting here that could read something and will know it because that's the way God made them. So I'm not speaking about that. What I'm speaking about is to the vast majority, for us to actually know it, we need to apply it to our life. There needs to be something about it. Like you could read all you want about mechanics and how to fix a car, but until you actually go and fix a car, you don't know how to fix that car. Like it, the, the evidence is in the proof. I went and tried to fix my, one of my iPhones the other day. I watched a thing on YouTube. And I thought, yeah, I could do that. Ordered the parts, went and fixed it, and it won't charge. Like, did I know how to do it? Yeah. Did, did I really know how to do it? No, because... I tried and I failed. And sometimes we need to fail at things to actually know something. That there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's something in the journey of learning, definitely. But I still don't know how to fix an iPhone. Does that make sense? If I fix that iPhone, I could say I, I know how to fix my iPhone, but I wouldn't attempt to try and fix yours because there's so much in there that I could break. I found that out when I popped it open. <laughs> Actually, what I actually did was I fixed everything except the battery, which, oh my, they are so stuck in there. They just don't come out and I damaged the battery. So don't do that if you own an iPhone 5C. So I wanted to say something with me. To know is to do. To know is to do. Um, it's a statement that's been thrown around a lot um, around the world, and I won't say by who. Um, but it is actually something that we can glean from Scripture. To know is to do. Ephesians 5 kicks off with this. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Ephesians 5. And it says this in verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. We just sung about God being a good father. So this will speak to us today in the sense that we are His dear children. It says, be imitators of God as dear children. But I want to pick up on the very first word of that verse. It says, therefore. Um, famous speakers would say, uh, if there's a therefore there, you need to find out why it's therefore. It's just one of the reasons that it's there. It's to go back. There's a therefore for a reason. Why is it there? Well, it actually shows us how verse uh, chapter 4 concludes. So I want to read a little bit of the conclusion of this for us probably from verse 25 in, verse, in chapter 4. It says, therefore, there's another therefore, so we should really go back a little bit, but we spoke about that last week. It says, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, 
for we are members of one another. That's what we said last week, yeah? 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer. That, that's a word that James used during, during communion. What was it? Restitution. Uh, but rather let him labor. This part is restitution. Working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Sounds like a pretty good way to live, doesn't it? Sounds like a pretty good way to, to live with Christian charity and unity. So that's what the therefore is there for. Sorry, I'm not a wordsmith. Um, the therefore is in light of these things, that which we need to put off, to be like children to imitate the Father, uh, to imitate God, what Jesus did. These are the things that God wants us to do, but we can't do that if we're carrying around the baggage of these things that, that chapter 4 finishes with. How can we imitate God who is good and holy if we're carrying around anger and malice and, and, and all sorts of things like that? Um, how, can we, how can we do what Jesus did if we're carrying this around? So I could say, do what Jesus did, but there's a battle, there's something that's going on there that we need to put in place first. How the Father responds is how we respond. Um, don't live as if God is not in the equation, but soberly and maturely we come before God knowing that as we admit our, our weakness, in the middle of that, he comes to us and he shares his strength so that we can overcome those things at the end of chapter 4. That we can actually put those things off and live out of a place that says we can imitate God. Everyone say again, to know is to do. So if you just took that home today, that one line, to know is to do, and know that what I want you to hear out of this is that we are called to be imitators of God then to know God is to be like God. To know God is to do what Jesus did. And Paul, Paul put it even in another way. He says, if you can't grasp that, then follow me because I follow Jesus. Does that make sense? Because we need to put it into ways that we can understand. How can I imitate God? I don't know God the way that I should. Well, you can, you can read about Jesus in the Gospels and you can learn how he would handle situations. Oh, but what if I can't do that? Well, then you could read the epistles and you could learn lots of things that the, 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 the early disciples and the writers of the epistles did. And then how can I do that? Well, you can find someone mature in your life that you could follow and say, I want to become more like him because, or her because that person is more like Christ and I want to be a little bit more like that. Does that make sense? So to know is to do. It's not just that to know that you need to imitate God. It's more than that. It's actually let's step into 
the fact that we know it not just in our minds, but we know it with the fullness of our beings. James puts it this way in chapter 2, um, verse 14 and to 18. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go, in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You see, he puts it in a real practical sense for us to understand how to outlive the faith that we have. He then says in chapter 4 of the same letter, he says in verse 17, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now there's a sobering thought. You see, it's one thing to have faith, but it's another thing to put faith into action. And then it's another thing to know as you follow God, that if you don't do what is good, then God views that as sin in your life. You see, that's, that's very sobering right there. Um, to do implies that we walk by faith after the one we follow. Who is? Just so we're all on the same page, who are we following? Cool, you're, we're on the same page, that's good. The answer is always Jesus, if you ever wanted to know. So in the light of this, being imitators of God, of walking maturely before the Lord, the three things I want to pull out of this chapter for us today, there's three things in there that I want us to remember. The first one of these we find in the very, um, very start of this chapter. It's called, uh, these are actually pulled out of the headings, interestingly, out of my Bible, but I never saw the headings. Uh, about you, but I try not to read the headings when I read my Bible because I think they're just the wrong splits at times. Sometimes they put these headings in and you think, no, well, that kind of relates to what Jesus was saying here. So I tend to read it without, especially when I'm on my, my phone, I read it without the headings in it so I don't get tripped up by it. So I, I wrote these down and then I went to my Bible and, oh, hang on a minute, that's really funny. Walk in love is my first one. And that's what the title in my Bible is for Ephesians chapter 5. So the first thing I want us to understand, I believe God is saying to us as a church, as we, as we look at Ephesians and as we look at this whole concept of being mature Christians and, and walking out of love, is this very first one. Walk in love. Verse 1 to 2, I'll read that to you again. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. Walk in love. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Imitate God, walk in love. My question around this is, we know this, do we not? But do we do this? Is, is every moment of our day expressing the love of God in every situation? Now I know it's not. I know that's impractical. I know that's hard to do because we live in a broken and a fallen world. And I know that in, in certain respects, we're selfish people. I, I, I know this. I'm a husband. I'm a dad. And at times, I'm very, very selfish. It's quite evident. You don't have to go and have a cup of coffee with my wife and she'll tell you that. 
right? That's just the truth. But the question really needs to be, if we know this, do we do it? To, to make every opportunity to show love um, our, our number one cause. When we're in Sydney for the conference, I can't remember the exact wording that Richie used, but he, he used, used this sort of phrasing, love demonstrated looks like something, or love looks like something. It looks like Jesus laying down his life. Therefore, the church needs to understand that love looks like something. It's actually the church laying down its life for the hope of the world. If we're walking in love, then we actually need to show love. It's not just saying, I love you and walking away, not giving the needs that need to be fulfilled. That's what we just read about James. You know, like love demonstrated looks like something. It looks like Jesus on a cross. It looks like laying down a life for another. That's actually what love looks like. Love, by the way, is inconvenient. Would you agree? Those of you that have been married for a long time, is love convenient? Or is it work at times? It can be hard. When your child wakes up at 2 o'clock in the morning screaming and you've been exhausted because you've been working 13, 14 hours that day. Love looks like something. You don't let that child scream. You get up and you find out what's wrong. It might have a fever. It might be hungry. The child might, might just have had a nightmare. But love goes in and sees what that child needs. To be a Christian, to walk in love, we need to be prepared to be inconvenienced. I've got to remind myself of this one all the time. I'm quite task-focused at the time, and, and, and I often try and just put my head down, and I go into town, and I do things. But if I want to show love, I've actually got to get my head up, and I've got to start to look around to who God's showing me needs love. We need to do this as a church. I had a, con- a conversation with another man in the church, and, and he's the same. And he said, I, you know, I, I'm retired now. I just need to go out and find people to talk to, but I'm always too busy. And he's like, I, I know what I need to do. I need to go with an intention, but it, make my schedule longer. You know, plan time around actually being inconvenienced. Uh, yesterday I went grocery shopping and um, I just said on the way to the shops after I'd left where I was, God, I don't want to be inconvenienced today. I just wasn't in the mood to be inconvenienced. And I wasn't. But I saw a Christian brother and he come up and he shook my hand and he said, G'day. And guess what? That encouraged me. I didn't have to encourage him. You see, I wasn't inconvenienced. I was loved. If I can receive it that way, then we can do the same thing to other people, yeah? See, love looks like something. We've got to walk in love, to go out of our way, to take time to talk to someone, to pray for someone, uh, walk a different path to have an encounter. The, the, the best example of this you will find in any book is in the Bible, John chapter 4. Jesus leaves uh, one community. He, he'd done all that he could do there. And he gets up and he goes, I need to go. And as he starts to head off, he detours. On his way to Galilee, he detours and he goes to a place that Jewish people did not walk through. The place is called Samaria, the town of Sychar. And at that place, he said, I thirst. He sat down at the well and he had an encounter with an amazing woman who had five husbands. Do you think Jesus was inconvenienced? 
No, because he went in love. He went for the purpose of doing it. That's what I mean by love. We can't do that 100% of the time. But if we schedule and look, we've got 168 hours in the week. And if we say, God, I just want to give you 10% of that, 10% of that, right? I'm going to give you that bit of time. So that means I'm going to go to church. I'm going to do a little bit of ministry here. I'm going to spend some time ringing my friends and encouraging them and sharing with them. And when I'm up the street, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to look for the inconvenience. I'm going to look for the person that's going to inconvenience me because there's something in me that I need to share with them that releases the kingdom of God and brings a revelation to them. Exactly what Jesus did with this lady at the well. And when she encountered love, she ran straight back into that place and didn't care how shamed she was. She told them about the one who knew everything that was to know about her. All he knew was how many husbands he had, but that was everything. Everything. Right? Many revivals set off because Jesus took time. Yeah? This is just simple, practical things. If you took 1% of your, of your week and said, God, I'm just going to give it to you, God will honor that. He will. He will honor that. There's too many stories around, getting around as people do this. Love looks like something. It looks like a mother and a father and their child as they're crying, as I said. Verse 3 to 7 says this. The same chapter, chapter 5. It says, and we're back into this sort of same language that he was using at the end of chapter 4. He writes, But fornication and all the uncleanness of covetousness, uh, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So not only does he say, don't do that, but he says, no, just give thanks. Give thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, wow, that's, they're really harsh words, you know, I thought wrong about someone last night, or you know what, there's something that there's a secret I'm holding on to and I don't want anyone to know. Firstly, if you were numbered amongst the saints here this morning, if you know Jesus Christ and He has cleansed you of all unrighteousness and He has come and lived inside of you by the power and the witness of His Holy Spirit, then you are not numbered among those people. That's what He's saying here. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. If you know Christ, you are not a son or a daughter of disobedience. You're a son or daughter of God. Which is why... We have to hear these words because they are not what God wants for our lives. They are not even second best for our life. Our choices in the flesh are not even second best in our life. You've got to remember that. God's best is our only choice in life. That's what we have to hang on to. We don't have to go for our choices because that is not even on the scale of what God has for us. We're not numbered among those people. So why would we reattach ourselves to that kind of thinking? 
Why would we put ourselves back under curse when we are already forgiven and freed? Now, we make mistakes, and that's another sermon, but you know where we come from on that point. John says in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 16 to 18, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the... For the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not live our uh, love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So to imitate God, to walk the walk of maturity, to be more like Jesus be a healthy body that's affecting the, the, the place that it's planted. Need to love, and we need to love well. Walk in love. Let love be your compass. We know love because Christ laid down his life for us. Our second one, we find in verse 8 to 11, and um, the second Thing that I want us to take, the second point that I want us to take here this morning is that we need to not only walk in love, but we need to walk in light. Verse 8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the world, uh, in the Lord, sorry. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Expose them. Light and dark cannot mix. They can't. I, had, I have this conversation on a regular basis over the last 10 years. We think we can make it work no matter what situation you're putting yourself into, whether you think you're going to be an influence on a person or not. If you're not plugged into God and you're not plugged into a mature fellowship and you're not plugged into growing in your faith and in your intimacy with God, then you will have no effect on that person and that person will corrupt good morals. That is a biblical principle, and you need to understand that. Because there are too many Christians getting involved with too many people thinking that they are the one that God can use to change that person, but you are not plugged in intimately with God, intimately in a church, and you're not in a place where you're growing in maturity. Hear what I'm saying there. God can use any vessel to change any person that he desires. But you're not going to do that if you're ostracized and isolated from the body of Christ. And, and I've seen it too many times. I did it myself when I was 16 years old. I withdrew from church because I thought I had it all and I thought I could change people and I couldn't. And this too, happens too many times that people... Um, I'll use the, the, the term that, that Paul's writing here. Children in Christ think that they can do it all. But guess what, guys? Reality is you can't. 
Intimacy will help you to overcome those things. Now, that's not to say that I've got to be real careful what I say here because you might take it the wrong way. That's not to say that God can't use you to change a person's life. But if you're going to walk that journey, you want to be open and you want to be accountable and in a place where you can be asked the hardest questions at any time, at any moment. I've walked in this journey at the moment and, and I have no shame in going up to this person and saying, where are you compromising? because you need to lead these people through these sorts of things. If you think you can change a person by, by loving on them, then good on you. But you need to be tapped in and you need to be accountable in the things that God is calling you to do. You belong to someone. You belong to Him and Him alone, yes, but you belong to the body that He's placed you in. All right? Does that make sense? Like I said, I've got to tread carefully on that one because you could twist what I say but you've got to hear my heart in that. It's like the old question of the teenagers. Mum, am I allowed to kiss my boyfriend? Like, How far is too far? And ultimately, if we're asking that question, then we're asking the wrong question. That's just reality. If we've got to ask how far is too far, then we actually shouldn't be in that relationship because you're compromising already. Right? How far is too far is one of these things of God. How far can I go before I get burnt? And he says, have no, have nothing to do with darkness. You are light. Darkness and light cannot mix. All right? Does that make sense? Everyone's real quiet. I think I lost yours. It's all good? It's all good. All right. Paul warns us to live as light and expose the darkness, but we think alone we can change the darkness. What about go away from relationships for a second? Because it's not just it's not just relationships that we need to be careful of. Should I have another block of chocolate? Now, you could say oh, a little block of chocolate might be all right, but most of the people that are struggling with this area are talking a block of chocolate. How far is too far? Can I have another piece of chocolate? What about one more drink? There's a quiet one. Where are we compromising our witness? Where are we compromising our light? When God says, have nothing to do with darkness, but yet on a Friday night, we think we can go and change the pub and we're not tapped in. And all of a sudden, one drink becomes six and you've stepped out of there and someone's seen you and they feel that they've got cause to judge you for the decisions that you've made. And then one of your leaders have got to step in and either defend you, which is probably not the best thing to do, or discipline you. And that's the harshness of reality. Like, what about one more? You know, if you feel like one drink on a Friday night in the privacy of your own home and you believe that you've got a good conscience with that, then go for it. 
can't begrudge you that. Jesus had, had wine. You know, he turned water into wine. Go for your life. But if you're compromising your light and your witness and your walk, then you need to stay away from it. It's that simple. Light is meant to expose darkness and not darkness, dim light. We need to see that we are pure lights. Where are we compromising our walk and our witness and our relationship to Jesus? By asking wrong questions. Again, the book of uh, the letter of John, first epistle of John. So, First John chapter one and verse five to nine, he writes this: "This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all." God's not yin and yang, people. You know what yin yang is, don't you? That's where good has got a little bit of bad in it, and where bad has got a little bit of good in it. God's not like that. In him is no darkness at all. He is pure. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The operative word I want you to hear there is all. That's why you get the hard questions sometimes. That's why we need to think about these things because where are we compromising our light? Where are we compromising our witness? Needs to be on the forefront of our thinking because if God is light and I am to walk in light, The moment I compromise that, guess what I need? I don't need judgment. I don't need the finger pointing at me. I need someone to come around me that I can confess my sin to so that the blood of Jesus can cleanse me of my unrighteousness so that I can be pure and bold again in my light. That's the practical outworking of that passage of Scripture. Our third one, and I need to finish... Our third one is walk in wisdom. So if we're walking in love, if we're to walk before man and God in love, and if we're to walk in the second way in the light that God provides, who is light, then being open and exposed before God, that is walking in the light, then thirdly what we need is to walk in wisdom. We need to walk in wisdom. So if there is um, Ephesians 5, uh, 5, 15 to 21 says it this way. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Look carefully at how we walk, not as unwise, or in the New King James, it's written not as fools, but as wise. It's a strong word, fools, isn't it? Know God's purpose in you, how He wants you to live, 
and represent him well. Let's put it in these terms. We need to embrace our advantage. One of the fruits of the Spirit is wisdom, is it not? Who gives us wisdom? Holy Spirit. So we need to actually understand that He doesn't just give us wisdom, He is wisdom personified. And He's been given to us to empower us to witness to a world that needs Jesus. Let's have, how about we start embracing our advantage? Verse 18 tells us to not be filled with wine, but be filled with what? Or in, in this case, be filled with who? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think for us, this is our application from walking in wisdom. To be filled with the Spirit is the application of walking in wisdom. Knowing that we can ask God anything. Knowing that we can come to a place and say, God, what do you want me to do here? And waiting on His answer is wisdom. Not just rushing out and buying the next latest and greatest thing and putting your bank balance under pressure. But taking wisdom in those decisions. Not just, not just running into a relationship and, and not asking what God's purpose in, is for all of this. Not just going from one church to the next, to the next, to the next, and then all of a sudden your root ball is just small and diseased because you just haven't sown into the goodness of the place God's planted you. That's wisdom. 19 to 21, just to break it down for you a little bit more. It says, actually before I do that, in, in the note of um, in study Bibles, they've got notes at the bottom. And in the note of this one, it says, um, the tense of the Greek for to be filled makes clear that such a spirit-filled condition does not stop with a single experience, but is maintained by continually being filled as commanded here. The Spirit is to influence all aspects of our lives, overflowing in transformed relationships, dynamic ministries, and enhanced worship, which includes a personal prayer language, or in our, in our terms, tongues. Let's look at 19 to 21 again. It says, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart, do you think that's a wise thing to do? I think that is. I think that does more than what we think when we come together to worship, when we come together to sing and to be in the presence of God. That does more than what we think it does. Giving thanks always for the things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When was the last time you were truly thankful? Hopefully for the most of you, you were truly thankful this morning as we praised and worshipped God. Because James gave us that opportunity to be thankful. 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God or in the reverence of God. Being part of the body, being part and saying, I'm willingly submitting myself because this person might have a slightly different perspective to mine and that needs to shape me because that person's connected to the head just as I'm connected to the head. That's what willful submission is, knowing that it's the reverence of the head, Jesus Christ, that we submit one to another. It's not submission to a leader. It's not submission to the minister. It's submission one to another as the body of Christ. 
Each and every one of us has a function. I said that last week. And understanding God's will and purpose for the function that He's created us for is submission to one another. There's no way I could get up here and sing like Pete. Is that right? You'd probably all go, ah! Does that make sense? So I'm not going to try and take Pete's position. I'm submitting to the fact that he's leading me into the presence of God through his worship. That's what it is, submitting one to another. I can't, I can't be an usher like Jan or Amy or those sorts of people. Well, I could, but I'm not called to be. Does that make sense? But these people do a fantastic job making others feel welcome, handing and making sure some of the jobs are done, opening the windows and pulling the chairs down each week and making sure there's tea and coffee for you, like, and making sure that they distribute the, the communion elements to you. That, by taking that communion element off them and not judging wherever they are and whatever they're doing in their life, you're saying, I submit to you because you're submitting to the call of Christ in your life. You see, submitting one to another as is what we're called to do. Ephesians 5, it teaches us to walk as Christ. Ephesians 5 is very practical when we look at it in these terms. To walk in love, to walk in light, and to walk in wisdom. If we could come to a place of understanding that that's what it is to live as a Christian maturely, sown in to the house that God has sown us into, to the body that He's placed us in, sown in so that we can start reflecting this love, this light, and this wisdom to a world, guess what will happen? The world will start to come to you for answers because they will see something in you that they do not have. Let's stand to our feet. If something resonated with you this morning and there's something in your life that you just feel that you want to give over to God right now, just take a moment and just say, God, I feel exposed before you, but that is a good thing. God, deal with my heart. Wash me, cleanse me, renew me. Renew my vigor and my passion to be intimate with you and to be connected with your church. Just place your hands on your, on your spirit, on your heart right now. God, we don't want our own things. Jesus, you died so that we are not to be selfish. To be selfish is not the call that you want us to be. And we choose now to submit and to surrender to you, Jesus, and your leading. We want to walk in light, in love, and in wisdom. We want to be able to show the world what faith, love, and hope is. And to do so, Lord, we want to be unified in this very thing. That we would be like the head and that the body, the hands, the feet, the mouthpiece of God would carry the message of hope and the message of love to a world that so needs you. God, I thank you. Help us, empower us, equip us by your spirit. Renew your spirit in us now. Father, we, we ask that you would fill us to overflowing with your presence. That we would tap into the fruit of the Spirit, the joy, the, the love, the peace, the patience, the goodness, the gentleness, the wisdom that comes from you. And Father, we want you and we're not going to hold back in the pursuit of you. Thank you, Lord, for your love. 
We receive your love right now. In Jesus' name.